This is this episode is supported by Earn In. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn now can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Super, super easy to use. You just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then you can access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. So the app is free. You can leave a tip if you want. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So here's the thing. Sometimes getting close to your next paycheck, next pay period, and you realize, oh gosh, like paycheck doesn't come until next Friday, but we have this event that we need to attend this weekend and we need money for it. Or we have to buy a gift for someone. Or, oh my gosh, like my kid tore through their shoes and now we have to buy new shoes this weekend and the money's not in the bank yet. So Earnin can help you access the money you've already earned at work by giving you this little bit of money in advance. So make Earnin part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security, and it gives me a lot of peace of mind. So for our listeners, all you need to do is download Earn In today. It's spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, and you can download it in Google Play or the Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Shameless Mom under podcast when you sign up. So there'll be a little place where you can, where it says, what podcast did you hear about them on? Type in Shameless Mom under podcast. This helps to show support for our show and our advertisers. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, and subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. The Shameless Mom Academy, episode 58. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean, and I'm here to give you and other passionate, dedicated moms the tools you need to bridge the gap between motherhood and living the life of your dreams. I'm also here to help you be a little more shameless every day. Because if you aren't building a life you're extraordinarily proud of, what kind of legacy are you building? So let's dive in. On today's episode, I'm talking with Amy Blair. Amy is a former elementary school teacher who is currently a stay-at-home mom of three unique girls. She lives in Connecticut with her husband, Jason, and daughters, Julia, age seven, Angelina, age five, and Sonia, age two. Her oldest daughter, Julia, is a friendly, imaginative little girl who likes to play, read, dance, eat pizza, and also happens to have Down syndrome. Amy and her husband first received Julia's diagnosis when they were 13 weeks pregnant. Amy works hard to be an advocate for her daughter and for all members of the Down syndrome community. She is particularly passionate about reaching out to expecting mothers who are experiencing the emotional roller coaster of prenatal diagnosis. Amy sent me an email a while ago complimenting me on the podcast and saying all sorts of nice things. And then also just mentioning that maybe sometime I could do an episode on a family who has a child with special needs or where the parents received a diagnosis prenatally, as that was Amy's situation. She didn't really share much about herself in the email, just kind of a suggestion of this might be an interesting topic. And I sensed that maybe she had a story to tell. So we corresponded a little bit more and I asked her if she would share her story and she agreed. And so we sat down and did this interview and Amy was so lovely and graceful sharing her story and sharing just some of the most emotional challenges of her life, I'm sure, but definitely of her pregnancy and learning about Julia's diagnosis early in her pregnancy, what that was like, what the doctor's recommendation was, the first doctor that told her something was not right in her pregnancy immediately suggested terminating the pregnancy. 
which they did not do, thankfully, because as you can see from this episode photo, Julia is a darling little girl and Amy's family is just gorgeous and would not be complete without Julia. So Amy shares her story of diagnosis. She shares the emotional roller coaster, the physical roller coaster, and everything that ensued after that diagnosis and how that impacted her marriage, how it impacted her pregnancy, and then the challenges that came afterwards as well. By the time Julia was born, they were very excited to meet their little girl, but that immediately catapulted them into a scary surgery when Julia was just three months old, an open heart surgery. So Amy shares about that. She shares about the challenge in her marriage as they went through the diagnosis especially the most challenging day of her marriage when they received the conclusive diagnosis. And then Amy talks about what she wants other moms to know about Down syndrome and about some of the myths surrounding Down syndrome. She talks about the power of inclusion in education. And she talks about how she wants to be treated just like any other mom. And she wants to be in your book club and your wine group and all those kinds of things. This was a special interview. And I so appreciate Amy being open to sharing her story and talking so openly about her experience. There's some controversial things that happened during her pregnancy in terms of being faced with the idea of abortion and being faced with decisions about when should one terminate a pregnancy and what does that mean for different families and sometimes just different opinions within your own marriage about what that might mean. So I really appreciate Amy coming forth with this story and sharing it very openly about everything that happened in her life and where she's at today with her gorgeous family. So please listen in and make sure you share this episode if you know of another family that might benefit from hearing Amy's story. I think that it's an episode that could be really helpful and beneficial to other moms, whether they already have a child with Down syndrome or maybe a different kind of special need or a pregnant mom who might be facing something similar and maybe facing some sort of prenatal diagnosis that is scary to them because this story really shows the power of working, hoping for the best, working for the best, holding out for the best and what can happen when you do that. And when you ask for second opinions, when you ask for more answers and all the things that can happen when you go down that road. So let's go ahead and dive in with Amy Blair. Amy Blair, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to dive in and hear your story. And I have to thank you because you reached out to me via email about your family and about your sweet daughter, Julia, and uh, kind of pitching me the idea of that I should do an episode about a family with, you know, different kinds of children and different family makeups. And I right away when I saw you didn't share your story in that email. And so I was like, I think she has something story to tell me. And then when we went back and forth right away, you were very open to doing this interview. So I so appreciate that. And I'm very excited to get chatting. So I know well, you thank have you for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. I know you have three gorgeous little daughters. You sent me your family photo and I immediately teared up. They are the sweetest girls, or at least oh, visually. They look very sweet. I'm sure they all have their moments. <laughs> they have their moments, but they're good kids. So tell us about who makes up your family and how are each of your daughters unique and special? Okay. Well, I'm Amy and my husband's name is Jason. We met in college. We've been married for 11 years. And we have three daughters. Our oldest is Julia. She's seven. Our middle child, Angelina, is five. And then our, our baby, Sonia, is turning two on in a couple of days. They are very unique children, each of them. Uh, Julia is very friendly, very outgoing, very stubborn. I loves reading and being read to. That's like her favorite thing in the world. She loves music. She loves school. And she also has Down syndrome. So she was our first child, and she's the one we're going to be talking a lot about yes. today. 
<laughs> and then our other two, Angelina's our middle child, and she is our question asker and our performer. She loves to sing. She loves to be in front of a crowd. And then our little one, she is our just tough as nails, third kid, going to follow the big kids around, and no one's going to tell her otherwise. And that's our family. Oh, that's, I love that they're all so different. That's so great. So tell us about your pregnancy with Julia and the story of her Down syndrome diagnosis. Okay. Well, I feel like, you know, every mom has like their birth story that they tell, you know, with other moms. And when you're the mom of a child with special needs, we all have like our diagnosis story that like, we'll like swap stories and we're like <laughs> all together. And for us, my diagnosis story with Julia sort of has two parts. There was the day when we actually got her confirmed Down syndrome diagnosis. But before that, there was what I call sort of the, we have a problem day. And for me personally, that was the day that was more traumatic, more emotional was that first day. And, how, and where were you in your pregnancy for these two timeframes? So that day, the, you know, we've got a problem here day that was at my routine 12 week ultrasound and OBGYN visit. Okay. The actual diagnosis was about two weeks later. Okay. So we went in for our routine 12 week visit it was going to be our first ultrasound. It was our first baby. And when we got there, the doctor said something about, oh, well, we're doing an ultrasound. Are you interested in doing this test called, it's called a nuchal translucency test. And it's just, we take this measurement behind the baby's neck. And this was 2008. I think that test is fairly common now, but in 2008, it was kind of new and like that they were offering it to everyone. And we had no idea what it was. And we were just like, sure, why, you know, why wouldn't we want, you know, a test that would give us more information about our baby? That sounds great. So we went ahead with the ultrasound and, you know, we absolutely had that, you know, first time you see your baby in an ultrasound is amazing. And we were just over the moon and there was our baby and, you know, her little heartbeat and everything. And we were thrilled. We just couldn't have been happier. And then the doctor walked in. And from what I remember, he just, you know, there was no chit chat. There was no small talk. There was no, hi, how you doing? He didn't really look us in the eye. He just sort of came in and said, um, hi, guys, we have some problems we need to discuss. Oh. And so right there, you know, I just remember it was like the walls were closing in, yeah. you know, I didn't catch my breath. I'm sure that, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I'm sure I went into like some form of shock, like some very like feeling like you're floating outside of your body kind of feeling. Yeah. And it's very hard to sort of even comprehend what the doctor was saying. <laughs> it was like my brain wasn't processing anything. Right. So he showed us the ultrasound picture and went to that measurement behind the neck that he had mentioned before. And I think a normal measurement is like two millimeters or something like that. And our baby's was six millimeter, which is highly, highly, highly abnormal. Wow. In fact, I've never met another parent who had a measurement like that. And then he pointed out there were pockets of fluid around her heart. Oh my gosh. And he was just like, I'm sorry, but this is indicative of a baby that's not going to survive. Oh my gosh. Most likely. I think that's what he said. So obviously we were devastated. And like I said, very much like the information was coming in, but I wasn't really processing it. Total sort of state of shock. And in that moment and in that state of mind that I was in, the next thing he says to us is, we need to have a talk about terminating your pregnancy. And wow. I remember hearing the words 
and completely not comprehending what he was saying to me. Like, I think I stared at I mean, reality was probably just a couple seconds, but I felt like I stared at him blankly for, you know, about five minutes. And then suddenly, like, my brain clicked on and I was like, my doctor just asked me if I wanted to get an abortion. And I just couldn't, like, comprehend what was happening, like, how our conversation got to that. And really, if I'm being honest, it wasn't a question. He wasn't really asking. He was just sort of saying, like, we need to talk about this. This is what needs to happen next. And, you know, my husband and I were just completely sort of at a loss for words. And, you know, I talked to him about it afterwards, too. And he sort of described the same sort of state of, like, hearing the words, but not understanding and... So we were both there in that same state of mind. And I finally said, can we think about it? <laughs> and which was like, you know, can we have 24 hours to think about, you know, the hardest right. decision I've ever had to make? And I can only describe his reaction as being annoyed. And he was like, well, the sooner you do it, the better. Oh, my and that gosh. Was as much, that was as much sympathy as we were going to get from this doctor. And they um, didn't, he didn't say, and he did not suspect Down syndrome at this point. He just, he um, suspected something more severe. Well, he said in pretty much no uncertain terms that this baby was not going to survive. Okay. And he did say at some point chromosomal abnormality. And I okay. remember saying, do you mean like Down syndrome? Because it was the only chromosomal condition I was really familiar right. with. Right. And he was like, well, maybe, but I don't think that's what he thought. I think, you know, he thought that this baby had an unsurvivable condition. Okay. Based on, you know, one ultrasound. So I guess was finally satisfied that we were not going to sign up for the abortion on that day right there. Um, Holy cow. He said to me, well, there are some more tests we can do if you want. And I was just, what do you mean there's there's more tests we can do? Of course we want to do the test. Like, you don't want to, like, tell us that first before we have the abortion conversation. Let us know that there are more tests we can do and more information. Like, of course, we want as much information as we can get before making this decision. So he made an appointment for us the next day to see a, at a prenatal diagnostic center where they special in, you know, high-risk pregnancies. And we would also see a genetic counselor there. I had no idea what a genetic counselor was at that time, but I had an appointment to see one. And the last thing I remember about the appointment is the ultrasound picture that he had printed out. And instead of giving it to us, he stuck it in his file folder and walked out the door. And it didn't really hit me in that moment, but on the way home, so I sobbed the entire way home. My poor husband had to drive. And I remember it hitting me and being like, he didn't give us our picture. Yeah. And in that moment, thinking that there was never going to be another one, just thinking, you know, the baby's not going to survive and I don't even have that right. one picture right. of baby and being so upset about that. Little did I know I had many, many, many ultrasounds in my future. So <laughs> it was okay. But at the time, it was devastating that I didn't get that picture. What and, were those next um, 24 hours like waiting for the next appointment? They were really sort of, the best word I can use is I was very blank. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was very disengaged and just kind of trying to wrap my head around what this might mean. And thank God it was only one day we had to wait for this appointment. So the next day we went to the prenatal diagnostic center and we saw a different doctor. Um, we took a different ultrasound and we met with the genetic counselor as well. And so a genetic counselor, if you're not familiar, is someone who is knowledgeable on you know genet- various genetic conditions and sort of walk you through based on your ultrasound markers, what conditions they think your child might have, and also walk you through what kind of genetic testing is available. And our genetic counselor that we worked with was wonderful. 
And this appointment was like night and day from the one we had the day before with my regular OBGYN. What a relief. And, yeah. I mean, this is what they do at this place. And they were excellent at it and far more compassionate. Yeah. <laughs> so they concurred with the doctor that this was a baby with a chromosomal condition of some kind. And we talked about Down syndrome and we talked about trisomy 18 and trisomy 13, which are both conditions in which the baby typically does not survive. Talked about something else called Turner syndrome. And, you know, they explained that the only way to know for sure what we were looking at was some genetic testing. And I had no idea. I didn't know what an amnio was. I had no idea, you know, of any of this. So this was all like new to me. And I remember saying in that appointment, like, my doctor sounded pretty convinced that, you know, this baby was not going to survive. Like, what do you think about that? And they both kind of looked at me and were like, well, you would definitely be in, you know, a higher risk category for miscarriage, but we don't see anything in your ultrasound that is, you know, imminent, you know, fetal death. And you made it to 12 weeks and that's a good sign. And I was just livid at the doctor. (laughs) Because having, you know, gotten this more information from this place, it felt like really he was sort of giving me an opinion. So thank God that we found better doctors. We had a situation like that when we first started our infertility journey and a doctor this old man, I hated him. He uh, gave us a few opinions. And one of the last things he said, we met with him for like 10 minutes. It was a second opinion and appointment. And we met with him at the end of the appointment. He was basically like, yeah, I concur with the other guy. And basically, you should also know that like, this is kind of a private matter. So you probably want to keep it to yourself. And like, you probably don't want to share this like with the rest of your family. It was so weird. And I was like, who are you to tell me who I can talk to my infertility about? Like, it was crazy. And so that was like the last thing he said. And then like a week later, we got a $2,000 bill for this 10 minute appointment. I was like, "This who is this man? And he was like, in Seattle, he's one of like the top male infertility specialists. I'm like, a lot of people in really fragile states go to see this person. And this is what they're getting. It really opened my eyes to the doctors do not receive any training on how to deliver this information sensitively to families. And some have a natural knack for it and some don't. Not and- at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was this day after that you seemed like there maybe were some better possibilities. And then where did it go from there? So from there, they made an appointment. So we agreed that we wanted to do genetic testing because it really, you know, based on the markers on our ultrasound, some of the conditions they thought were possible were survivable conditions and some of them were not. Okay. And so we wanted to know if we were carrying a baby, you know, that had a shot or not <laughs> at surviving and right. especially after, you know, what the first doctor saying. So I had a test called a CVS, which is a little different than an amnio, which is more people are familiar with an amniocentesis. It's very similar, but it can be done a little bit earlier on in pregnancy. So because I was only 12 weeks, I had the CVS. And I think, again, I think that was like the next day or it was very quick turnover that they got us in to have the test done. It's a gigantic needle that goes in through your abdomen and takes a tissue sample, I think from your placenta. I think that's how, what it is. So it was kind of terrifying. Yeah. And it does, the test itself, carries a very small chance of causing a miscarriage. So some people will just, you know, not to do it for that reason. We felt like the low risk was worth it to, you know, figure out what we were dealing with here. So we did the CVS and then I think it was like 10 days to wait for the result. Oh my gosh, that's a long time. It was a long time. And I should probably mention, so um, I was teaching at this time and this all happened in the summer. So I was on break from work. Also, I had really bad morning sickness. So I was very sick. So 
I was basically doing nothing. Like I wasn't even really leaving the house. Like I was basically just, oh you know, lying on the couch all day, um, being sick and waiting for test results. So it was 10 very long days, but it did give me a lot of time to sort of process and think about what the different outcomes might be. And did you and your husband make any plans for different outcomes or were you just going to wait and see what the results were before you had conver- those challenging conversations? And Yeah, it seems crazy, but really we didn't. And I think we were still too much in sort of shock still. And, you know, I was home, but my husband was working and he needed to, you know, be functional, you know, go right. leave the house and function at work every day. I think I did a lot of sort of thinking on my own while I was alone at home. And I think he did a lot of sort of, we'll cross the bridge when we get there because I have to, you know, be a functional human being every right. day, which ended up, you know, when we did actually get the call, we were sort of in two very different places mentally for those reasons. Yeah. Because, you know, I had a lot of time on the home couch to think and he didn't. This episode is supported by Air Doctor. You probably don't know that Americans take in about 20,000 breaths per day and spend an average of 90% of their time indoors. The indoor air that we breathe can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. Indoor air pollutants can cause upper respiratory symptoms like sneezing, coughing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So what's the solution? Introducing Air Doctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. I am so excited that we just got our own Air Doctor for our house, and we will have it all up and running and ready to go in time for all the things that come with spring weather, but also smoke season, which is just around the corner for those of us in the Pacific Northwest. And I know many of you across the country. So here's how you can get your own Air Doctor. First of all, Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus the shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code SHAMELESS and you'll receive up to $300 off of air purifiers. Exclusive to our podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to airdoctorpro, A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code SHAMELESS. That's airdoctorpro.com, code SHAMELESS. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily. It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Utube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for 
understood explains and it will pop right up click on it pick your episode and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school so tell us about the call and and your different reactions so the call came it was genetic counselor who made the call and funny enough they she had actually asked me if i preferred that she make the call or if my OBGYN make the call and i was like i don't ever want to talk to him again yeah Um, and I never did, by the way. Good. I never saw that. So she was the one who made the call. And I feel like she just gets like a gold star. Like she did everything right in this conversation. She called and she said, you know, we have your test results. Your baby has trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome. And, you know, I think she went on just to give me some general information about that. We had, she had already given us a little general information. Our office said, you know, we can make an appointment and I can give you more information about that condition. And then she just said very neutrally, we were living in Massachusetts at the time, and she just said, in the state of Massachusetts, you know, you do have a legal right to terminate a pregnancy up in so many weeks. I don't remember what it was. Would you like more information about that? And I said, no. And she never brought it up again. You know, there was no inserting her opinion. It was just a neutral statement. That information was available should at any point in time we want it. And then she asked me if we would like to know the gender of our baby. So the little perk when you go through genetic (laughs) tests is that you have with absolute certainty the gender of your child at 13 weeks. And when we'd gotten pregnant, I was kind of on the fence if I wanted to know the baby's gender. But in that moment, I so desperately wanted something to make this a human baby again and a diagnosis. And she said, it's a girl. And, you know, that was comforting. Like, oh, you know, I'm not having a big, scary Down syndrome. I'm having a baby girl. Right, right. That totally humanizes it. I think that I understand that. I know that when we got our genetic testing back after IVF, I did not want to know the gender if it was not a good embryo and if like if it had severe chromosome abnormalities as it did as it turned out and i did not want to know the gender because i was like i can't humanize this because we aren't going to be able to move forward with it and so i totally understand for you on the opposite side of that being like okay i need to humanize this and that will help you move forward so i left that call with sort of mixed feelings because obviously that's a lot of news to take in but if i'm being honest i had prepared myself for much worse news right there was a worst case scenario and this was not it. So it didn't really feel like, you know, like bad news. It felt in a way like, like, oh, okay, like Down syndrome. I, I didn't know that much about Down syndrome, but I knew there were, you know, grown adult humans, you know, living in this world with it right. that, you know, I did ask her what like the survival rate was. And she said, it's very high. She said, you know, you would be sort of considered a little bit of a high risk category for miscarriage, but it's very good. It's very high. So I kind of, you know, it felt like a win. It was, you know, this is a a survivable, you know, baby who's going to live and grow up and maybe have some challenges in her life. Right. So I felt, uh, you know, pretty good about that. And I absolutely did not want to have any conversation about terminating the pregnancy. I knew this was, you know, it was a baby who could survive and that was all I needed to know. And what was your Then I called (laughs) at work. Looking back, that was maybe not the best choice. (laughs) But I just, you know, I couldn't like not tell him. When you're holding that kind of Uh, information, you can't like you can't just hold that by yourself. Right. And there was no one I could, you know, I couldn't call anyone before calling him, obviously. And so I called him at work. And I remember just sort of saying, like, I got the call, the test results, and we're having a girl and she has Down syndrome. And just sort of like end of story. (laughs) And (laughs) 
I don't remember exactly what his reaction was on the phone. All I remember is that a half hour later he was home because he went to see his boss and was just like, I can't, I can't yeah. get through the rest of this day. Yeah. And his boss sent him home. We were both lucky to have very wonderful understanding employers yeah. <laughs> through all this. And so, like I said, I did a lot of sort of thinking and processing leading up to this phone call. And my husband had not because he was in survival mode. And so I think it really just hit him like a ton of bricks. Right. And the next 24 hours were probably just the most excruciating 24 hours of our marriage. I don't even think we each other maybe it wasn't even 24 hours it felt like you know eternity but I don't even think we talked to each other we were kind of like in our separate corners and he really needed like time and space to process like I had already had and he hadn't and a part of me knew that but it was still like you know really hard and really scary and I know in my heart that he was not ever going to ask me to terminate this pregnancy, but he's a data guy and he's the kind of guy who needs to consider every possibility and every outcome and think everything through. That's just how he is. And, you know, he needed time to do that. And, you know, I'm more of an emotional (laughs) sort of decision maker. So my mind was already made up. So after what I think was about 24 hours, I don't really actually, I'm not sure. I think he finally, he came downstairs and he picked up the phone and he called his parents and started explaining to them, you know, what had happened and what was going on. And to me, that was when I sort of knew that, you know, he was coming to a place where he was okay. He was on board. Yeah, he was on board. And then he sat down with me and I don't remember exactly the conversation that we had, but I remember him saying to me, because I'm scared is not a good enough reason to end this pregnancy. That's a big, bold statement. Because I can see, you can see where fear could drive a decision like that, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, it is very scary and very overwhelming. And they're telling you, you know, oh, we can just make this all go away. Right. And you don't have to be scared right. and overwhelming. Right. And in that moment of, you know, those emotions, you know, absolutely see where someone considers that. Yeah, Definitely. And especially because you had been presented with that from the beginning, I think it probably was a little more top of mind, maybe, because that was what the doctor originally, like the power of, not that he would do that because the doctor had originally suggested it, but there is that power of suggestion, like that had been put on the table immediately when you guys knew something was wrong. And so that probably was just kind of in his mind is like, if we have to, this is an option. And you had already, like you said, you had had some time to work through that and decide that that wasn't an option. So I can see where you guys would be at different places and it would take some time. And that fear being such a huge component of such a huge thing to work through to get to the place of being okay with it. So what was the rest of your pregnancy? Were you able to then kind of move forward from that point or was it, did it continue to be emotionally kind of tumultuous or what direction did that all go? Yeah, the rest of my pregnancy was definitely an emotional roller coaster. For sure, there was a lot of grief, for sure. And, you know, when you when you start like reading online, like things about getting prenatal diagnosis, the thing that they always say is, you grieve for the loss of the child you were expecting. Yeah. And having it framed in that way was really helpful to me because, you know, there's almost like you feel sad and then you feel like guilty for feeling sad like I'm sad about my baby like you're not supposed to be sad about like who your child is and um, 
but to have it framed that way, like you're not grieving, you know, the child you have, you're grieving because, you know, in our minds, we have these ideal, you know, perfect (laughs) babies that we imagine. And, you know, that's not the baby you're having. And, you know, it is a loss. You know, you do experience it almost like a death of a child, even though you still have a child, but it's a different child than the one you thought you were having. Right. Was there like underlying sadness throughout your pregnancy or were you able to get to a point of feeling optimistic and positive or was it just kind of fluctuating between the two? No, I definitely got to that point. And I think initially it was very like good days and bad days. Like, so there was grief. I went through definitely some anger, some, you know, (laughs) why me? This isn't fair sort of days. I went through some sort of like irrational blaming myself. Like this is all my fault. And like, I'm somehow inherently defective and produced a defective baby which is just total nonsense like that's not you know what causes down syndrome at all but it's it's irrational yeah and then I would have these days that I call them like super mom days when I would just be like I'm gonna be you know the best mom ever to this baby and I'm gonna learn everything about down syndrome and I'm gonna read every book and read everything on the internet Mm -hmm. and so I would have days like that too which would sort of inevitably lead to me being like overwhelmed and (laughs) and that again. And so it really was a roller coaster. Like, and then, yeah, I got to a point where I was just sort of done. And I just was like, you know what, I'm done being sad about this. And I'm done being angry about this. And I don't want to do that anymore. And I remember sort of having a conversation with myself and just saying like, you know, you're not a victim in this, like you had a choice. And didn't that doctor make it all too clear that there was another (laughs) choice? And, you know, I wanted nothing to do with that choice. So it was time to just like own that choice. And this is the baby we're having and just move forward. So yeah, there was a definite sort of like hard stop turning point for me where I was like, I'm done grieving over this. What point was that in your pregnancy? Do you remember? I think it definitely, so, you know, we got our diagnosis very early and we had a lot of time, like there was still six months left in my pregnancy. So by the time I think I got to my third trimester, I think I was pretty much done with, (laughs) which is not to say like you never have a moment, you know, but for the most part, I was ready to, you know, move on. I think we were as a couple ready to move on and we were you know, over it. So you said that your husband told his parents, but were you telling people and family and friends and everyone, like, did everyone kind of know what was going on? Or did you wait till after Julia was born to share the Down syndrome diagnosis? Or how did you guys manage that? So we told our family, you know, our immediate family and a few of our closest friends, you know, right off the bat, but with, you know, personal phone calls and, right. um, you know, it was still so emotional right then that we really, you know, you can only make so many phone calls right. and tell so many people. So we had like a small group of people who knew exactly what was going on. And I think I kind of left it up to like our parents to tell like our extended family. And then a few months down the line when we were feeling a little more ready, actually we sent out an email to our sort of extended group of friends. And sometimes it seems like a weird choice, like an email is a little bit impersonal, but, and I had actually done some reading online about like how we should, you know, how should you... (laughs) break news like this to people. Right. And the thing about the email is that nobody has to respond to you. Like they can read it and process it and then come up with what they want to say with you because it's when people are sort of on the spot to come up with something to say to you that they tend to um, <laughs> put in the mouth, right. say the wrong thing. Totally. And we didn't want to put anyone in that position, partly because we didn't want to hear it. Yeah, I think that's such a (laughs) great way to protect yourself and also understand other people's need for like a moment to 
like you said, like people just say, even with the best of intentions, people just say right. weird things. Yeah. So, yeah. And it also just lets the email let us sort of put our own frame on, you know, how we wanted the news, you know, so, you know, we could say, you know, we're excited for to meet her and, you know, sort of frame it positively because we were sort of done. Like we just wanted to move forward in a positive, you know, direction. We didn't yeah. want, you know, sympathy. We didn't want, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, those kind of reactions because we were past that. Yeah, that makes sense. So we did send an email to tell sort of our extended group of friends. And I think the last group I shared with were my coworkers, with the exception of like the few people that I worked most closely with, because they, I mean, I had my prenatal schedule was like crazy because I was on like the high risk task. So like the people who worked with me directly knew like, why is he needs going for appointments like every other day? But just actually shortly before Julia was born, my coworkers threw me like a baby shower at work. And I sent out an email um, thanking them for the shower. And that was when I explained the diagnosis. It was before she was born, but just barely. I think I was or two away from my due date at that point. Okay. So tell us about Julia's birth and how, where you were at emotionally at that time. Julia's birth was great. I think emotionally, I mean, we were emotional the way that every first time parent is emotional right. when they're, <laughs> but in terms of the diagnosis, we really were at it, at peace with it and, you know, kind of over it emotionally by then. And I think really like that's the gift of prenatal diagnosis is that the day of her birth was just joyful. And, you know, I've met a lot of a lot of mothers who got their diagnosis the day their child was born and feel sort of very robbed of that day. Yeah. And I think because we, you know, that was one of the gifts of knowing ahead of time was that the day of her birth was, you know, was very joyous and and not very, you know, not just stressful, you know, like the day that we got her diagnosis. That's great. I mean, you earned that day because you did a lot of work to get there. Yeah. So it's yeah. nice that it's nice that you could get to a place of celebration after having to go through all of the emotions and the stress and the fear and everything that you went through early on. What um, were I, I was just going to say, you know, when she was born and they gave her to me, you know, I definitely like, I will totally admit that I look for the, you know, Down syndrome comes with very specific facial features and physical yeah. features. And I absolutely, you know, looked her up and down and like, not that I didn't believe that she really had Down syndrome, but sort of needing to see it for myself. Needing to confirm it. And I saw, you know, the shape of her eyes and the little tiny ears and the flat nose and all of that. And, you know, and I just remember seeing like, okay, you know, it's there. And just also in that moment, knowing that like, it didn't matter at all. And she was just, you know, my daughter. Yeah. So having gone through all of that, you had two more children. How did that experience with pregnancy impact your decision around having more children and impact those two pregnancies? Well, so Down syndrome is a randomly occurring genetic difference. It's not something that the likelihood of having a second child with Down syndrome is really, really low. So we knew that. That being said, it did kind of, you know, innocence lost on the idea that like, oh, everything's just going, you know, everything goes according to plan and every pregnancy works out perfectly. So I don't think like we never, we had always wanted to have two or three kids. And I don't think we ever really deviated from that after Julia was born. If anything, I think I, you know, really wanted Julia to have siblings and and so we didn't really change our plans on that front. Were you nervous? throughout your pregnancies or did were you able to look like what you just said makes you know logically you know the statistics about if you have one child with down syndrome you're not 
more likely to have a second or your chances aren't necessarily increased, but were you more nervous in pregnancy just about any potential complications or were you able to just view it each pregnancy as completely separate and be optimistic and positive? I think initially, you know, with my second pregnancy, we were offered, you know, genetic testing with our second pregnancy. We decided not to get it done. We did do like a, they call it a level two ultrasound. It's a more detailed, you know, anatomy scan. And we did that. We did like the standard blood work kind of test and none of that turned up any concerns. And so we decided, you know, we didn't need to do genetic testing. And I think we kind of felt in a way we were like more fearless because we'd been through it once and we were kind of like, you know what, we can handle this. Right. So, um, that makes so you know, much sense that you like, you're like, we already know how to deal with whatever's thrown our way because you have right. already had to do Now, that. by the time I, when I had my third daughter a few years ago, the maternity T21 test was available. So I don't know if you know what that is. Is that it's the blood test? The, the blood test yeah. for Down syndrome. And that did not exist when we had Julia. So in sort of the Down syndrome world, that test is a little bit controversial. There's a lot of claims that it's not as accurate as it claims to be. And things like that. And so anyway, like, you know, it was offered to me as I think it's now offered like pretty standard to every pregnant woman. And we thought about it and we opted not to get it done because not for like moral reasons or anything. Mm -hmm. We just didn't really see the point. We were like, all this is going to tell us is if we're having a child with Down syndrome and we already have a child with Down syndrome. So we're okay with that. So we opted out of that test with our third pregnancy. So your daughter Sonia is two. You have the three girls. So sweet. So I want to talk a little bit about with having three children and your girls are fairly close. So Julia's seven, Angelina's five and Sonia's two. Is that correct? Yeah. Angelina and Julia are 21 months apart. Oh my gosh. Wow. That must've been a little bit busy. I mean, I'm sure it still is busy. So I'm sure you were able to see with them with two kids so close in age. I'm sure there's the opportunity to compare and contrast in terms of development and all those kinds of things. Do you find yourself doing that? Yeah, I think I've been on many occasions. I've been grateful that Julia was my first, which is so funny because when I was pregnant, I remember really feeling like, okay, you know, I'm going to have a child with special needs and I'm okay with that. But why did it have to be my first one? Like, I don't even know about like being a mom and, and really wishing that like I had mom experience first before I had her. And then I ended up feeling exactly the opposite. Like I was really grateful she was my first because sometimes you just, you know, you don't know any better. And I was just very focused on her and what she was doing and trying not to compare. Right. And yeah, I mean, definitely like everybody compares, but I think having Julia first, you know, I think I sort of learned my lesson really early on that there was just nothing to be gained by comparing this child to any other child. So I think I probably done that less, even like with my other two children, because I had her first. I think that's great. And I think it's, you know, I'm sure that you can like, from a neutral stance, note differences or note differences in milestones or whatever, but that doesn't necessarily need to make it like a positive or negative association with how each girl experiences those milestones. So what were the biggest surprises and positive outcomes after Julia's birth? I just think I had so many fears while I was pregnant, like that I, you know, obsessively thought about that, like, I wouldn't feel bonded with her, I wouldn't fall in love with her, you know, the first time I held her that my husband wouldn't feel bonded with her, or, you know, that I wouldn't think she was, you know, beautiful, because of, you know, her facial features that come with Down syndrome. And it's so many of these fears, and just not a single one of them, (laughs) 
you know, came true. And, you know, I feel like looking back, it was like so much wasted energy on, you know, all these things that I was so scared about and just you know, none of them ended up being what, none the of them outcome. Came to light. Yeah, none so of- great. I think that we all have, the, no matter what kind of birth and child rearing experience we're entering, I think that we all have a lot of fears. And I think that once you're in oh, it, oh yeah, absolutely. once you're in it, it, it's all unfounded. You know, to some degree, okay. <laughs> where you're like, absolutely. I'm just going to do what I need to do to get through the day every single day, and regardless of what you know, if I'm ha- raising a child with Down syndrome or a boy or a girl or you know an- another some sort of other special need. Like you just put one foot in front of the other and you totally figure it out and you totally make it work. And I think there's some relief in probably just being in that rather than the anticipation of that and in the anticipation of how you were going to manage that. I can see where there would be fear as you approach that and then just relief and like, oh, I can handle this and I'm just doing it one day at a time. So I also, I had a lot of fears about medically what her health would be like, because there is this, oh my goodness, just enormous list of medical issues that people with Down syndrome are quote, at greater risk or, you know, in a category. And of course, when you're pregnant, you imagine like she's going to have every single one (laughs) she's going to have. So tell us a little bit about the struggles that you were faced with after Julia was born. Okay. So Julia, in addition to Down syndrome, Julia was born with a congenital heart defect, which is very common in kids with Down syndrome. It's about like 50% of babies with Down syndrome also have a heart defect. And we also knew that prenatally. That was like our secondary diagnosis. So there were no surprises at her birth. Like it was just, you know, as we knew it was going to be. It also meant that she had open heart surgery in her future. And that, you know, had a big impact on her health for the first three months of her life. So she had open heart surgery when she was three months old. Oh, my gosh. I'm assuming that was terrifying for you. It was, yes, absolutely the most terrifying day of my life. But it was also, you know, completely successful. And I mean, we were in the hospital for, I think, five days. And she was fixed and we were home. And so it's, you know, miraculous. Yeah. And leading up to heart surgery, Julia had feeding issues. So I know you went through feeding oh my issues gosh. with your son. <laughs> it is the most stressful. I mean, I really think there is nothing more stressful than a baby who's not eating. And I'm saying this as a parent who went through open heart surgery with her child. Isn't it terrible? It's it is, terrifying. Um, so my whole life leading up to her surgery was, you know, pump and feed and repeat and, you know, all day long, nonstop. And she just had like this perfect storm of, ta- there's a lot of challenges that babies with Down syndrome can have because they tend to have a weak suck and a weak latch due to muscle tone. And then you put the heart issue on top of that, feeding would exhaust her and she would fall asleep. And so if we weren't careful, she would get into a state where she was expending more calories than she was taking in. Oh my gosh, just th- during the process of eating? Yes. Oh my gosh, so you were oh, her, sweet like, girl. Calories, milk. Yeah, it was super stressful um, to the point of when, when my second daughter was born. So Breastfeeding was not going to happen with Julia. There was too many challenges. We were basically like pouring the milk down her throat. Like we wanted it to be as easy as possible for her. So and my second daughter, she um, nursed pretty easily. And I almost never gave her a bottle. And it wasn't because I was like hardcore into breastfeeding. It was because I was so traumatized by feeding from feeding Julia. Like every time I held a bottle in my hand, I could feel myself just like a tense up and like wow. this panic sort of response. Come on. So my other two girls were almost exclusively breastfed. That is so interesting. <laughs> that totally makes sense, though. I mean, like, I feel like if I, you know, 
that was my biggest fear of having a second baby or one of them was like nursing. And I was like, I'm afraid that I just won't be able to do it because it was so hard the first time that I'm afraid I'll just go into panic mode and like my milk production just won't happen. (laughs) So yeah, I can see like on the other side of that, I totally understand that feeling. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listener can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. This episode is supported by Nutrafol. Did you know that hair thinning will happen to approximately one in two women? If you're among them, you are not alone. Thinning hair is normal, but it's not openly talked about, so it can feel lonely and frustrating and sometimes even embarrassing when you're going through it yourself. Join the over 1 million people who are doing something about their thinning hair with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. Oh my gosh, I am a heavy shedder, so if you are a heavy shedder or if you are someone who's wanting to thicken your hair, I definitely want you to try out Nutrafol. I have loved using it myself, and I know multiple other people who've used it and have found great results. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplement for six months. To get started, you can take their hair quiz on Nutrafol.com, which will give you a personalized health plan based on your special root causes. Nutrafol is committed to helping you identify root causes of any shedding or hair loss so that you can really start to rebuild healthy hair in a way that is customized to you. So take the first steps to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code SHAMELESS. Find out why 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Go to Nutrafol.com. That's N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code SHAMELESS. Nutrafol.com, code SHAMELESS. So I told my husband, 
post-traumatic bottle syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. How is Julia just like every other little girl and how is she different? She is, you know, a sort of common phrase that we use in the Down syndrome world is more alike than different. And I mean, she is a really like any other seven-year-old girl, you know, she loves school. She loves her friends. She loves playing. She loves reading. She loves her shows on the Disney channel that she watches. She's a very normal seven-year-old girl in a lot of ways. She loves her family. She loves her sisters and also fights with her sisters. (laughs) And then, of course, she is different, you know, in some ways. So probably like the main two ways that a child with Down syndrome is different or a person with Down syndrome is different is, first of all, they have something called hypertonia or low muscle tone. And it took me a long time to really like understand what that meant because you hear like muscle tone like gets thrown around in like a fitness sort of context. Right, right. like she's oh. never going to be buff. Um, but that, <laughs> right, but that isn't really what it means right. in in this case. It's it's a neurological condition, and it basically means that her muscles are constantly in a state of being sort of semi relaxed. Mm. So if you can imagine like tightening up your muscles and then, you know, letting them go slack, hers are always sort of slightly slack. And so that impacts, you know, her physical development. You know, she didn't walk until she was just after she turned two, which is pretty normal for a child with Down syndrome. And it's sort of, you know, these floppy muscles, they're hard (laughs) to work with. And she also has hyperflexible joints. So you throw that on top of the low muscle tone and, you know, the motor skills just come more slowly. Yeah, that makes sense. And... Also, one of a big muscle, big strong muscle you have is your tongue. And her tongue is always in that slightly slack state and that impacts her speech. So she does talk. She talks a lot (laughs) all the time. But you would hear like a difference in her speech. You know, we understand her. We understand everything she does. Not everybody does. Right. (laughs) And she has had to work hard, you know, for those words. You know, she's a speech therapist. She's been seeing a speech therapist since I think she was one year old and will for probably the rest of her life. And so things like that just sort of take more time and more patience and come a little slower. And then there are cognitive differences in people with Down syndrome. So I think the misconception that most people have that I had myself before I knew better was that, you know, people with Down syndrome are, are, are just sort of like, you know, not as smart, like lower, learn slower. And certainly in something, she does learn something slower, but it's much more specific than that. Like there's very specific parts of the brain and a person with Down syndrome not function differently than yours or mine. And some of the big ones are working memory and short-term memory. So your ability to sort of hold a lot of things in your head at once and then your short-term month, those are, there's a both big deficit for Julia. So mm-hmm. until something is really in her long-term memory, she has to just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Okay. And Tell after, me about, what is her school situation? So she's a second grader this year. School just started here. And I think this is our second week in school. And she is, you know, included in a classroom of her second grade peers. And she has an aide. Uh, who works with her one-on-one when she needs help with things. And then there are parts of the day that she leaves the regular classroom and goes to like a resource room with a special ed teacher Okay. and works there. For things like the like heavy academic, you know, math, you know, she can't do yet what the other kids are doing. So it makes more sense for her to be sort of learning in a separate setting. Okay. For a lot of the day, you know, she has lunch with her peers and recess and, you know, gym and art and music and, you know, starts her day in the classroom every day. 
so there are a lot of, you know, parts of her day where she is with, you know, all the other second graders. And then there are some parts where she works either one-on-one with a teacher or in a smaller group to get more specialized instruction for the way that she learns. Okay, that makes sense. And does she have, well, I'm sure she's friends and sometimes not friends with her siblings, as can happen with <laughs> sisters. Outside of her sisters, does she also have a group of friends at school as well? Well, if you ask Julia, she would tell you that everybody is her friend oh, because that's so sweet. She's the world, you know, everyone who's in her class, she would right. call her so, friend. And that is in fact, so last awesome. year when it was like birthday party time, like I never thought I would be like the mom who had like the invite the whole class party. <laughs> I was like, we have to. I'm like, she thinks every person in her right. class is her friend, that and is that's so fantastic. So. <laughs> We had to, you know, invite the whole class party at a bowling alley, and it was the best day of her life. She loved oh, it. That is so cute. Um, and how <laughs> wonderful to go through life thinking that, like, everyone's my best friend. Like, that's that's so great. <laughs> she definitely has, you know, friends that she plays with at school. A lot of our other kids with special needs and kids who don't have special needs. And I feel like as she goes with school, I'm sort of, like, collecting families. Or, like, I've met some families who, you know, really embrace you know, Julia and wanting their kids to be Julia's friend and, you know, include her in birthday parties and things. So I feel like I'm kind of collecting these families along the way and oh, <laughs> trying so to sweet. have relationships with them. Yeah. I think that actually the school affiliated with the University of Washington here in Seattle, where they have a lot of children of varying special needs. And then they also have typically learning children in the classroom together. And it's a lot of the parents who with children who don't have special needs who send their kids to the school, it's precisely because they want their kids to like, be able to understand, I think it's a preschool and pre-K program, but they want their kids to understand that there's just so many different ways that people learn and people look and people develop and all this. And I had a client who I worked with for a long time whose daughter went to this preschool and she said it was so amazing because her daughter just felt like her daughter could relate to like any child because she didn't really see differences as differences. She just thought like everyone is different in so many ways. It doesn't matter that we're all different. And it was so cool. So I I love that you have families who do want to, you know, build relationships with you and have Julia as a part of their children's social circle so that, so that all kids can, you know, see that differences don't have to be barriers. I think that's really impressive and really significant for all kids. There is a lot of research you know, recently out there now that, you know, inclusion is not only the best choice for the child with special needs, but really it's the best choice, you know, for everybody. That there is, you know, a lot to be gained for every child to have to be in an inclusive setting. Yeah. So how it works in Connecticut here is that every town has they're required to provide preschool for children with special needs. And then most towns will sort of match, like if they have 10 children with special needs that year, they'll accept 10 children without special needs. And that's how they run their preschool. So Julia and then Angelina, my second daughter, attended the same preschool program in our public school. And not at the same time, but, you know, the same program. And, um, you know, Angelina has grown up, you know, with her sister and, you know, with all kinds of kids. And she absolutely does not see... You know, like I remember her one day being coming home from preschool and being like, oh, there's a girl in my class. You know, she can't talk with her voice. So she talks with her iPad. Isn't that awesome? And I was like, yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, she just has never known any different. And, you know, she, yeah, she doesn't see disability. She just sees kids. Right, right. So what do you want other moms and families to know about Down syndrome and your, uh, your experience? 
there are a lot of misconceptions about Down syndrome. And I feel like anything I can do to sort of, you know, help clear up some of those misconceptions, I think is, you know, the best thing I can do to sort of make this world better for my daughter. Um, So one of the most common misconceptions is that only older women have babies with Down syndrome. That is not true. 80% of babies with Down syndrome are born to mothers who are under 35. So you sent me that statistic and I was so shocked. And so was I the first time I read it. So I was 29 when I got pregnant with Julia and I have met mothers who were teenagers when they had their babies and, you know, all kinds of ages. And it is true that your chances of having a child with Down syndrome do sort of gradually increase with age and that's age of the mother and age of the father. But nothing magic happens the day you turn 35 that is completely arbitrary. (laughs) Right, right. And so... Of having a baby with Down syndrome do sort of gradually increase with your age, but your odds of having children in general gradually decrease with right. age. So the end result is most babies with Down syndrome out there are born to women who are under 35. Okay. And I think even like in the medical community, there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. And then going along with that, a baby isn't born with Down syndrome because the mother did something wrong. This is like an absolute at the top of my sort of pet peeve list. And I'm shocked that, do you think that that's a common public perception? Yes, I do. And I've worked with children with special needs before. So maybe that's why this was shocking to me because I knew that that was not true. I know that there's nothing that you could ever do to prevent something like Down syndrome. If it's going to happen, it's, it's going to happen. But I was shocked that when you mentioned that other people would think that it was something that the mother did because I certainly had not, that was not something that had ever been on my radar and how horrifying that people would be walking yeah, around so. thinking that or saying that or making those judgments. So, I mean, I didn't personally hear too much of this, but I've, you know, like I said, the, you know, we all swap the stories and I've heard all yeah. kinds of crazy things like women being asked like, oh, were you drinking when oh you were gosh. pregnant? Were you on birth control pills when you were pregnant? You know, were you exposed to whatever, mercury or whatever, none of that is what causes Down syndrome. Down syndrome is a randomly occurring genetic difference and it occurs at the moment of conception. So nothing that you have done during your nine months of pregnancy has any influence on whether or not your child has Down syndrome. And, you know, I think there's this sort of almost like other people want to believe like it's not going to be them. So they kind of want to know, well, what did you do wrong? You know, right, like this couldn't right. happen to me because I'm not going to do those things. Right. But that's the way it works. <laughs> Thank you for clearing uh, that up. <laughs> and the other thing that's misconception that's really out there is people with Down syndrome. You know, there's a lot of people think that people with Down syndrome are sort of like severely cognitively impacted. And you know, everything is arranged as, you know, with all people. And, you know, there are small segments of the Down syndrome population that are a little more, you know, impacted than others. But most people with Down syndrome fall into the mild to moderately cognitively impaired category. And a small percentage fall into like the low normal sort of cognitive, you know, we're talking like IQ tests and things Mm -hmm. like that would actually fall into the normal range. So, you know, we're talking about people who live really full, good lives. And um, functional, very functional lives. Yeah, go to college, you know, and, and I think there is still so much misconception that that is not the case. And I really do feel like this misconception is literally life or death because families are making 
decisions about their pregnancies based on misinformation and misconceptions. So I, you know, any opportunity I have to, you know, clarify those misconceptions, I'm going to take it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that for all of our moms listening who might be in a similar situation to yours. And I think that there's, you know, there's people who will be impacted by your story, but also just by that information right there that would maybe make a different decision based on that. So I think that's important for you to point that out. And I appreciate that. And and don't be afraid to include, you know, the mom of the kid with the special needs, you know, in your mom's group or in your book club or whatever, you know, she is just like you. And, you know, I understand where it can be intimidating to, you know, approach a mom who has a child with special needs or approach that child. But, yeah. you know, don't be afraid. I think that, yeah, and I think that fear can be such a barrier for people or the, and the unknown and the misunderstood can be a barrier. I love that you said, like, I mean, there's such similarity in all moms and just what women face in motherhood, no matter what their children are like. And I think that keeping that at the top of your radar is so significant when you are considering, like you said, you know, inviting mom friends to book club or whatever, recognizing that there's this like foundation of motherhood that we're all in the same place. <laughs> and, you know, we all have different challenges each day and some of them are super visible and some of them are not super visible, but that doesn't mean right. you know, that we're all swim- swimming upstream as hard as we can every single day. So, And when I'm with other moms who don't have kids with special needs, I tend to just talk about like regular mom stuff. And even right. like before I had my other two daughters, when I was, you know, because a lot of Julia's life is regular baby stuff and regular, you know, mom stuff. And it's good to talk about, you know, regular stuff. And then, you know, I have a really great circle of, you know, other friends who are moms of children with Down syndrome. And when I'm with them, that's kind of when we, we talk right. stuff on, you know, our sort of Down syndrome related stuff that our kids are going through. And that's great to have multiple networks too. I think it's important to have the network where you can relate to each other a hundred percent, but it's also yeah, important really to have important. variety in your social circles and to have those other shared experiences and connections with just all sorts of moms. Tell us how you're a shameless mom. I think when you have a kid with special needs, you become a shameless mom pretty fast. <laughs> Because, you know, any fear of being like that mom, you know, I'm that mom all the time. So, you know, it's fine. That's the mom my kid needs. And, you know, I've been that mom at the parent teacher conference who, you know, has a lot to say to her school. And I've been that mom who has a child, you know, acting wildly inappropriate at the playground who has to handle that. And, you know, that's, (laughs) that's my life. And I think, you know, Julia happens to have a disability that is right there on her face. And Mm -hmm. people see that and they understand that, you know, that mom's, you know, dealing with a child who has different needs and are very compassionate. But not every mom of a child with special needs is in that boat. There are, you know, kids out there with special needs that are not so obvious. And, you know, just sort of remember that when you're looking at that mom that you don't know what she's dealing with, you know. There's the the quote that everyone's fighting a battle you can't see. And yeah. like you said, some people, you can see it on their face. Some people you can't, but everyone, everyone has their battle. Everyone has their challenges. Everyone has the things that they are constantly struggling with. And there's pros and cons that come with that because Julia is certainly not, I mean, I'm sure you don't think of her as a struggle in your life. I'm sure she, you know she's obviously one of your yeah. biggest gifts. And so yeah. it's important that we can identify in all the directions of that perspective as well. So tell me why you reached out to me about doing this interview, which I'm so glad that you did. And I so appreciate you spending time with us today. Tell me why you wanted to do the interview and what do you want to leave moms with today? 
You know, I started listening to your podcast and I loved your sort of commitment to like sharing these sort of non-traditional mom stories that are, you know, a little outside of mainstream. And I think there's a lot of power in sharing stories like that to sort of normalize these situations. And I just think, you know, if there is another mom out there going through prenatal diagnosis or, you know, just had a child with Down syndrome, you know, if I can... There's one person listening who, you know, is impacted by this, then, you know, I would absolutely want to take that opportunity um, to do that. Thank you. I'm so glad that you reached out. And I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation and hear about your story and learn about Julia and hear everything that you've been through. I think that you brought up so many points of struggle that we all go through as moms. And some of yours are very unique, obviously, to your situation. But it's really helpful to hear your story because when we share stories, and I've been talking about this a lot on the podcast lately, when we share stories, it helps us connect as women and it helps us connect as mothers. And it also helps us build empathy for each other's situations. And it helps us build awareness of different people's circumstances. So I think it's so important to help just share stories in order to connect and in order to build awareness around different people's experiences, but also just for us to be able to be more relatable to each other as women and as moms. So I really appreciate you reaching out so that we could connect and do this interview. And I appreciate you sharing a story. I know that it's not easy to talk about the biggest, hardest days of your life and the most overwhelming emotional experiences of your life. So I really appreciate you being here to share with everyone what you went through and also that you had such a positive, amazing outcome and that Julia is such a light in your life. And I'm everyone has to go and look at your adorable family photo for this episode. When you sent me the photo, I immediately like started tearing up because you have just an amazing, gorgeous family. So everyone can find the show notes for this episode over at shamelessmom.com episode 58. And then Amy, can you tell us where we can find you? I know you have a local group and can you share that local Facebook group with us for people who might be near you? Sure. So I'm on Facebook. And if you are in the Hartford area or in Connecticut, I um, admin a Facebook group. Um, It's through the Connecticut Down Syndrome Congress. And the Facebook site is called CDSC Hartford County. And it's a closed group for families here in Connecticut that just want to connect with other families who have children with Down syndrome. Awesome. So we'll make sure that we link that up at the show notes. So if anyone wants a link to that page, you can go ahead and hop over to shamelessmom.com episode 58. And additionally, if anyone wants to reach out to Amy personally or connect with Amy personally, if you just want to send me an email and I can connect people, if there's a family that might be in a similar situation and might want to connect with you personally, if anyone wants to email me at Sarah, S-A-R-A at shamelessmom.com. And I would be happy to email intro you with Amy. I probably should have asked your permission about that, Amy, first. Yeah, that's totally fine. I think it'd be nice. Rather than giving everyone your contact information, if someone wanting to get in touch with you and wants to uh, reach out to me, I'd be happy to go ahead and facilitate a little introduction because I know that I can can tell that you would be a great resource for women in a lot of different phases of some of the things that you've gone through. And I also sent you, there are two links for the National Down Syndrome Congress has a new and expecting parent link on their website with a lot of information for parents who are expecting or recently had a baby with Down syndrome. And also the website babycenter.com has a really great support board for mothers who have a prenatal diagnosis. So that's a great resource as well. I've been on Baby Center for a million different things. That's great to know. And I have all those links that you sent me. So I will make sure that I link all that stuff up in the show notes. So again, people can find that at shamelessmom.com at episode 58. So Amy, thank you so much for spending time with us today and for sharing your story. I really, really appreciate it. And I know that you have helped other moms and other families today and you've inspired other moms to share their stories. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening today. Over on the show notes on shamelessmom.com, if you go to episode 58, you're going to see any links that Amy mentioned. And additionally, she kindly sent me some additional information, a book called A Good and Perfect Gift about a little girl with Down syndrome, a show. There's a show on A&E called Born This Way. So there's a link to that amazing new parent poem called Welcome to Holland, as well as the National Down Syndrome Congress new and expecting parent page and then the baby center page that she mentioned. So for links for any of that information, you can go ahead and head over to shamelessmom.com, look for episode 58, and you can get access to all of those excellent resources. If this episode was helpful to you or inspiring to you and you think it would help someone else, please do share it. You can go to shamelessmom.com to get the link for this show if you go to episode 58. You can also find us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at the Shameless Mom Academy. And you can share links from there as we will have this episode posted on both of those pages. And then please do know if this is your first time listening, we have new episodes every Monday and Wednesday. So make sure you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review. And when you are on that review page, that takes you into iTunes and it allows you to subscribe to our show, which means that you will get our shows automatically sent to your device and you will have immediate access as soon as our new episodes are released every Monday and Wednesday. So thank you so much for listening and have a fantastic day. No matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought provoking experts and friends at Mindful Mama. We know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.